This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. It's incredibly dynamic, this relationship between the enzymes and the substrate. And the enzymes have been some, it's, it's been the low-hanging fruit. I think we're now at a stage where we can actually start to look at the whole picture. We can look at substrate enzymes and products, and that would be more informative for molsters and brewers uh, so they can be more efficient in their mashing process. Did you know that the gelatinization temperature of your malt could be as low as 136 or as high as 154 degrees Fahrenheit? This week on the show, Charlie Bamforth's successor joins us to talk about variations in starch structure and what that might mean in your mash. Hi, I'm Glenn Fox. I'm the Anheuser-Busch Endowed Professor of Malting and Brewing Science at the University of California in Davis. When anybody first, get, first gets into brewing, they soon learn about temperature and hopefully pH optimums for beta and alpha amylase, which they then use to attempt to control wort fermentability, favoring beta amylase temps to produce a dry beer or alpha to create a beer with more body, mouthfeel, and residual sugar. When I began brewing, I didn't understand that these enzymes and others are all working in concert. It's a synergistic relationship, but some of these enzymes are a lot more temperature sensitive than others. Give us a quick tour of what's happening inside a typical mesh. Well, it's a, a very dynamic system. You've got three major starch degrading enzymes and sort of the, the poor cousin alpha-glucosidase or myeloglucosidase we don't talk about much, but it also has a role, although it is the most sensitive to temperature. But basically, we're looking for limit dextrinase to cleave off the branches. So in a myelopectin, it's got a lot of work to do to cleave off the branches uh, to, you know, up to 10 or 12% of the myelopectin structure has branches to it. And there's a few branches on, on amylose that has to cleave off. Alpha amylase will just come in and randomly cut these chains, but 
alpha-amylase does need about six glucoses together so it can actually grab onto that chain. So again, once chains start to shorten up, alpha-amylase doesn't have a substrate to work with, or not easily. It, it can sort of work with shorter substrates, but it, it's, it's less efficient. Beta amylase can just start merrily cutting off, cleaving off maltose, off chains. So it, all three can be happening at once, but as temperature goes up, limit dextranase will first start to feel that effect of the temperature and start to lose its efficiency. Then beta amylase will start to, again, feel the temperature and lose its efficiency. And alpha amylase will still probably be quite happy at around 64, 65 degrees for most of the mash. So in the end, you end up without basically alpha amylase just cutting up branches. You don't have beta amylase that can cleave off maltose and you don't have limit dextranase that can cleave off the branches themselves from reducing the, the chains. So all three need to work together to get full conversion or full hydrolysis of, of starch, but that rarely happens. Uh, and then brewers might be tempted to throw in other enzymes that are more thermostable to ensure better conversion or more full conversion if you wanted to produce dry beers. I've seen a few of your presentations where you talk about the mechanics of starch hydrolysis during mashing. It seems we've focused on only half of the equation for many years. What have we been failing to pay attention to? We've probably missed opportunities to explore the variation in structure of starch. Uh, starch is the most abundant component within the grain and there's two polymers to starch, amylopectin and amylose. And amylopectin is a large polymer and it makes up around 30% of the total grain mass. So it's, a, it's, it's there in considerable volumes. Amylose is a much lower proportion. Uh, it's normally around that 20 to 30% of total starch. So it ends up being around the same as protein content. It's around that 10 to 13 to 14% in total mass. So these two components are significant in terms of the total mass in the grain. But it's been difficult to really quantify structure. We've been easily quantify total content. So we can easily measure total starch. Total amylose or total amylopectin, and by default, we can work out the other. And there's the ratio between those two. So that's fairly straightforward. We've done that routinely for a long time. But what's what we now realise is that the structure of these two, and we talk about fine structure, is probably the most important part. Uh, the analogy would be with protein. We measure total protein content. We know there are hundreds of proteins we only measure a couple and we think we understand what's happening with protein, but we, we're still missing a lot of information. So the fine structure is really driving a lot of the interactions between the substrates, uh, between substrate and enzyme. So the enzymes have to bind to the substrate. The availability of that substrate is important. Uh, temperature is a big impact on availability of substrate. So high temperature mashing can really reduce the availability of enzymes getting to the substrate. Uh, and then it's really understanding this fine structure in a way that we can elucidate what's happening with the release of fermentable sugars or when we don't get full conversion of starch, then we're left with non-fermentable sugars and dextrins. And these contribute to flavour compounds or flavour in beer as well as some mouthfeel. So it's 
it's incredibly dynamic, this relationship between the enzymes and the substrate. And the enzymes have been some, it's, it's been the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and many researchers around the world for a long time have measured enzymes and we can easily elucidate the genetics. We understand a lot of it is driven by a growing environment uh, and beta amylase is correlated to protein content. So that's been done very well by many researchers over many years. Um, but in many of the, those studies, they focused on the enzymes. They didn't focus on the substrate, nor did they actually measure the, the product, the fermentable sugars that were released by the enzymes. I think we're now at a stage where we can actually start to look at the whole picture. We can look at substrate enzymes and products, and that would be more informative for molsters and brewers uh, so they can be more efficient in their mashing process. We've all seen the textbooks or sat through brewing school lectures that describe starch structure going from the barley kernel down to the large and small starch granules, then amylose and amylopectin and their individual branches. What we don't often hear about is the tremendous variation that is possible in that structure. Talk about that. Again, this is fairly new. We're just starting to understand that variation that can exist. I think in some ways it's it, we've been assisted by the tremendous effort by barley breeders over many, many decades because they're targeting malt quality. And to achieve malt quality, you need a narrow range of protein content. And the biological relationship between protein and starch in the grain has probably uh, facilitated you have a you, you would end up with a fairly common or simple starch structure in that regard because there's this balance. What we're now seeing that the environment is contributing to starch structure just as much as it contributes to protein content and composition. We're seeing that the degree of branching in a pectin can vary significantly between four percent, maybe up to fifteen or sixteen percent. So that's a lot of branches. If you're getting a lot of branches on your amylopectin, then the B and C chains, chains are probably a little bit shorter because the, the plant, the grain can only use so much carbon to make sugars and make carbohydrates. So there's this carbon balance that's going on within the grain during grain fill. So it's going to work out how much structure it needs to alter. Uh, so we can actually still have a, then a final structure that will be useful when the grain eventually germinates. So we're looking at the structure in a way we can now look at the, the degree of branching of amylopectin and amylose because amylose does have a small percentage of branches, but also the length of these chains. And again, environment is the big driver here. If we have hot, dry finish during grain fill, then a lot of these chains will shorten up and that impacts on granule structure the A and B granules and how much amylose and amylopectin is in those granules. And if that impacts on the granule structure, it can impact on overall endosperm texture because we still have this relationship between hordine and starch. Both of these being, are being laid down during grain fill. So as the hordine is being laid and packs around the starch granules, depending on how that dynamic is occurring, we might have a lot more hordine packing around the granules and you end up with a, lo a lot more tighter endosperm structure. And that can impact on hardness and overall potential modification during malting. 
So digging deeper into the structure is allowing us to not only look at starch per, per, per se, but also the interaction between starch and the protein and the overall endosperm quality. So it sounds like the the variation in starch structure um, that growing conditions have a much bigger impact on that potentially than genetics? I think so. I think we're seeing the environment is the big driver here. I think breeders have done a great job and they've been fairly conservative. They haven't purposely selected for grain quality, uh, I'm sorry, for starch quality. Uh, Certainly have selected for grain quality, suitable for malting. And I think by default, the genes have been selected that sort of give us the best structure. Uh, we still don't understand if we were to start to tweak the genes, which combination of genes should we tweak to either make much longer chains or much shorter chains. I think that's a new area of research is how we can actually alter some of these substrates in a way that makes it more conducive to allowing faster modification or more consistent modification in malting and then how more uniform or consistent the enzymes will be in mashing. So I think there's still some things to do with the genetics, but I think it's really environment is driving all of this. And it's often we think of, it's almost like univariate analysis. We think of protein content, but we don't think of the relationship between protein and starch. Or we think about protein, but we don't think about the relationship between protein and beta-glucan because all of this is happening during grain fill. The cell walls are being structured, beta-glucan and arabinozylan, the structure there is being formed. Then within the endosperm cells, we've got protein and starch being laid down. So it's this really dynamic system where we've got all of these things happening during grain fill. And all of these are controlled by other enzymes. So enzymes are making these substrates during grain fill. All these enzymes have some sensitivity to temperature or moisture stress. So if the enzyme is under a little bit of stress, it won't behave in an optimal way. So it can either uh, shorten up some substrates or make substrates much longer than when it should increase the total amount of a substrate or even produce less substrate. So it is such a dynamic system and often we only focus on one of those parts of the system and we make a lot of assumptions around what's happened with the other parts of the system. Man, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, you know, things are always so related and we think about that in brewing. It's hard to make one adjustment and not have have other side effects from that. You know, I, I think most brewers understand that there's a relationship between, say, protein and extract, right? It's a trade-off. But, um, you know, I don't think that most brewers probably have ever thought that uh, a variation in protein might be signaling a variation in starch structure. The, there's a beautiful relationship between protein and starch. Uh, and it is basically a, this trade-off, uh, getting a nitrogen balance and a carbon balance within the in the grain itself. The hordine, the endosperm protein, basically is a is a blanket that can cover the starch granules. So depending on how hordine is formed, then it can actually impact on the granule structures themselves. Hordine is about 30 to 40% of total protein. So there's another significant part of the total grain mass that we never measure. It's it's almost half of all of protein. 
beta amylase lives within the hoarding. So what's happened with beta amylase as it's been formed? Is it being formed in a way that it's gonna, going to be more available to start to hydrolyze, hydrolyze the starch? So there's this complete dynamic relationship between all of these things going on. But again, we sort of think, oh, there's a there's a negative relationship between protein and potential extract, or there's a negative relationship between protein and starch. But that is the the easiest way to look at it. And often we we do that and in our heads we do it automatically and we don't think about it in any deeper way. But it's it is so much more complicated than that. Coming up. Where the shorter amylose chain lengths increase the gelatinization temperature, and we found a 10 degree Celsius difference in gelatinization temperatures for these samples. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. Additional support provided by Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com slash MBAA. And thanks also to Christian Hansen, suppliers of frozen liquid yeast. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Eastern Canada has a webinar October 27th. District Western Canada has a webinar October 29th. Don't miss the Master Brewers webinar, Classifying the Unknown, Identifying Organisms with Affordable Genetic Sequencing, November 10th. District Northwest meets virtually November 13th. District Georgia meets November 17th at Bold Monk Brewing Company. District St. Louis has a virtual meeting November 19th. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets November 19th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. If you're still not a Master Brewers member, listen up. Master Brewers Association of the Americas offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Keep current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends 
by joining Master Brewers today. Use discount code BEER20 to save 20% on dues, now through December 31st, 2020. Master Brewers, United We Brew. back to the show. Glenn, you've measured the average chain length of amylose in over 300 malting grade barleys over the course of several years. What did that research uncover? We discovered some really interesting results with that research. We found that there was a, a huge variation in average amylose chain length, averaging from around about a 1,000 glucose units per amylose chain to up around 5,000 glucose units per chain. So there's this huge variation in the average chain length, and that would contribute to structural properties. But that also had a huge impact on gelatinization temperature, where the shorter amylose chain lengths increase the gelatinization temperature and we found a 10 degree Celsius difference in gelatinization temperatures for these samples. So samples would be gelatinizing in between 57 and 67 degrees Celsius and that was all to do with chain length. Again we found that environment was the biggest driver here <laughs> depending on the growing location and certainly those locations where you do get a little, little bit more heat stress or moisture stress during grain fill it had a tendency to shorten the chains up. This potentially increases gelatinization temperatures. So that means when starch is actually going into the mash, when the malt is added and the hot water is, is mixed with the malt, starch is going to be solubilized. But full solubilization doesn't occur until these higher temperatures. And apologies, I still live in a Celsius world coming from Australia. So we we're talking about temperatures are getting up to 64, 65, 66 degrees Celsius, so around that 148, 150 and higher Fahrenheit. That's fine. The starch will be solubilized, but all the enzymes are temperatures are sensitive to at these high temperatures. So there's potential, again, trade-off between how much fermentable sugar you can hydrolyze off the starch at these temperatures when you know you've got starch that's not been fully gelatinized at these high temperatures. So that's what we're seeing that, again, circling back to environment and how that's impacting on quality and how that can actually have an impact not just on the total amount of a, of a substrate, protein, starch or beta-glucan, but also the actual structure of that substrate. And that's probably more important than how much of the substrate you have. Well, it's a pretty big range. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about that. But, you know, Glenn, I guess we haven't really properly defined it yet. What exactly is gelatinization? Gelatinization is when starch becomes soluble in hot water. So the granules will swell and the amylose and amylopectin chains can leach out of the granules and go into solution. And therefore, they're then available for enzyme hydrolysis. 
you've seen gelatinization temperatures as low as 58 uh, and as high as 68 degrees C. Most brewers are mashing at 65 C or 149 F. What happens when your mash temperature is below gelatinization temperature? The risk is you're not going to get full starch gelatinization. So the enzymes can only work on what substrate is available. If the substrate isn't available, then the enzymes can can't fulfill fulfill their their role. So they're sitting around waiting for more substrate to be available. Temperature increases. They're starting to feel that, and then the enzymes finally go, "No, nah, I'm done," and they're still unfam- un unhydrolyzed substrate. So these will end up as non-fermentable sugars in the wort. Is mash thickness really a brewer's best defense against high gelatinization temperatures? I think it is. I think you're really going to protect your enzymes for a few minutes longer. Uh, so you will get more conversion of the starch. So that would probably be one of the easiest things to to deal with initially is just make sure you've got a, a reasonably thick grist to liquor ratio. If gelatinization temperature is such an important parameter, why isn't this a standard measurement on my malt COA? This is one of these challenges of who does this test? Where is it done? Uh, and I think there's ways around this. I, I think you could, you certainly, brewers would do scarification tests. So at, at Mashin, they will quickly do an iodine test to see where they think solubilization has occurred. Uh, and generally, that's pretty good. Within 10, 15 minutes, it's normally fully gelatinized. Um, but those enzymes are feeling the heat in those 10 minutes anyway. The way to look at it in a, from a different angle is actually, can we look at the fermentable sugars being produced rather than is the starch solubilized? So while we could do both, um, one of the easiest ways might be just to look at fermentable sugars because that's the product that then becomes a substrate for enzymes in the yeast to produce alcohol. In the short term, um, I'd love to see the industry start to look at gelatinization. There was a, a group working in Germany way back in the early 2000s and they recommended this become a standard te- test for molsters that they're measuring gelatinization. And while it is a straightforward test, it only takes about 10 minutes uh, for, for molsters, it, it, it could be possible. But again, they already have a lot to do uh, with what, what they've got available to them. Uh, and all these tests would add cost to the malt and could actually delay in how the malt is is produced and, and then sold. And it's probably a test that's more suitable to the large malt companies rather than the craft molsters, uh, those guys struggle enough to to get malt quality testing done and there's a huge cost to that. Glenn, how do you measure gelatinization in a lab? We have a a very expensive piece of equipment uh, called a differential scanning calorimeter and it basically measures the melting properties of starch. There's a couple of ways to do this. One, you can work with ground up barley or malt or you can actually purify the starch itself. Uh, that is a lot of work, and we don't normally worry about that process. So we can just work with ground barley and ground malt, and we're literally using a few milligrams of sample. So this doesn't consume a lot of sample, and it's basically a, a temperature cycle where we're increasing the temperature slowly over about 10 minutes, and we actually see a, a peak where we see that starch begins to melt. There's a peak melting melting, 
and a final melting. So this temperature difference is about, can be 10 degrees from melting onset to when melting is finished. And there's a peak melt point in there as well. So that allows us to measure and that peak point is gelatinization. I've heard of some breweries actually essentially observing gelatinization in real time by monitoring the amp draw on their mash mixers. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any comment on that approach as sort of a proxy for traditional measurements of viscosity and gelatinization. I think any sort of measure that can give an indication that you're getting full gelatinization is of great benefit. And certainly where you're seeing a resistance or a lack of resistance in your mash would certainly suggest you're getting modification and more hydrolysis of the starch. Okay, cool. Yeah, the one, um, it was a really interesting presentation I saw, I forget when and where, but um, basically they had, they were having issues with gelatinization temperature. And so they started tracking the amp draw on the mash mixer. And and when they started plotting that out, you could see some very clear peaks, you know, where gelatinization would, uh, would occur. And then and then, then I guess the viscosity would decrease as um, as the enzymes worked on that starch. If that makes sense. Sure, it makes perfect sense. It's simple physics. I don't know that that just um, to me that's a really interesting. I love like you know practical uh, solutions like that in a brewery where um, I mean lab measurements are great, but if you have a quick and dirty way of figuring out, you know, d- did we did we reach gelatinization at the point that we thought we would or not? Um, that just seems like a cool concept to me. It, it follows the same methodology we use for measuring other starch properties, and that's uh, what we call rapid viscoanalysis. So it's literally measuring the viscosity of a paste where we can see a peak and then we see it drop away. So it's, it's following that same inherent resistance of the mash. And as the temperature increases and the enzymes act on the substrates, then suddenly the, the, the viscosity decreases. Glenn, before we go, I definitely want to ask you a few questions about your recent appointment at UC Davis. Uh, But before we do that, uh, I'm wondering if there's anything else that you think brewers should be aware of in regards to the topics of starch and gelatinization. Well, I think there's probably the opportunity, instead of the molsters and and brewers suddenly swinging around saying, no, we have to measure gelatinization so we can plan our mash, I think Let's look downstream and look at fermentable sugars produced from the enzymes on starch and understand how those fermentable sugars and your yeast will interact. So we've lived in a, in a Play-Doh world for more than 100 years and everyone understands the Play-Doh value and we, we see changes during fermentation and we, we target a final Play-Doh, a final gravity, knowing that that will give us an indication of, of ethanol production. I think there's new technology coming that'll allow us to measure fermentable sugars either at line where you actually can draw a sample out and measure maltose and glucose, or there's actually technology coming around where they'll have infrared sensors in line so you can actually measure maltose production in the mash and then you can measure it downstream and then changes during fermentation. So I think there's two ways to look at it. One, we can be measuring gelatinization. Measuring gelatinization will tell us the, the temperature that the starch will be solubilized at, 
but in the malt COA, if you've if you've got DP and alpha, so diastatic power and alpha amylase, you're still missing information on limit dextrinase, so you still don't have a full story. So I think we could consider that and and increase the malt COA, uh, add some more variables to that. The alternative would be to consider some inline technology or at-line technology where you can actually be measuring the sugars themselves because we've seen big differences in the amount of fermentable sugars in worts that have the same Plato. So if you're pitching at a 10 Plato, we can actually see where you've got samples with 50% maltose and samples with 70% maltose. And that will certainly impact on how your yeast performs and your final gravity. Glenn, your appointment uh, to the Anheuser-Busch chair at UC Davis is still quite recent. Um, I'm hoping that maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, about the job and, and um, about your vision and plans for the program. So we've just gone 12 months. I was appointed in July 1, 2019. Uh, and, and started in the August because uh, allowing for visas and the usual documentation processes. But I got here in August last year and started teaching in the in the fall. So I've inherited a very successful program from Professor Lewis and Professor Bamforth. Uh, so they really did uh, create a, a pathway here for, for continuation of the great program that's already here. So there's a number of elements that we look at. We, we still do a lot of undergraduate teaching. So there's the senior uh, brewing courses, uh, which is a theory and practical course. Uh, and the practical course is especially industry relevant because the students actually get to design their own recipes. They get to brew that recipe. And then they present one or two of those beers to some judges they're judged by industry experts. The winner of that competition, which is called the Iron Brew, that recipe is then brewed at the local craft brewery Sudwork. And that's a huge opportunity for the students to then go and work in that brewery to help brew the recipe they designed. That beer is packaged and then made commercially available. So we're very much still engaged with the industry. We're not just teaching a theoretical course and Hopefully, people can go and make good home brew, which I'm sure they do. This is really engaging with industry and working with industry. We also offer online options. Uh, so even for the undergrads, you might be doing uh, a law degree or a medical degree. We have a, a simple online brewing course that non-science students can do, uh, and they really enjoy that. So that sort of comes through in, in sort of highlighting the the breadth of science that's involved in brewing that a lot of people don't really think about or understand how deep the science is in malting and brewing. We have graduate programs, so we've got uh, got some new graduate students looking at a couple of different grains and another student looking at hop creep. Um, so we're looking at some yeast effects on, on sugars to, to see the variation or potential in hop creep. And then there's always the continuing professional education programs. A lot of brewers or uh, people keen to get in the industry will come and do their master brewers through the program here. So we're, I'm involved in, in teaching that as well. I, I don't know this for sure, but I've heard that your predecessor had a view that maybe there weren't quite enough jobs for PhD brewers in North America. 
And so he was reticent to take those students on. And I fear that may have inadvertently created a gap in in the future of brewing science in the U.S. because there's not as many homegrown academics to fuel the explosion in brewing and fermentation science degree programs. So I wonder if you could comment on your vision for that side of the program. So we've got two current master students, and in the fall we'll have another two masters and a PhD student starting. So from my perspective, I certainly agree with Charlie that in most instances, having a master's degree is a very good way to get into the brewing industry. You've, you've done research, you understand the brewing process, process in a much de- at a much deeper level. But I'm also comfortable having more PhDs come through the program so we can actually have people going out there who want to continue research in brewing. They might work for a large brewing company. They might end up working in a university, uh, not necessarily in the US, but sort of anywhere around the world. And the brewing, the brewing program here has that reputation. So people coming from the program at UC Davis, most brewing universities or, or programs around the world understand the level of expertise and excellence that comes from this program. So I see there's still, we'll continue the master's program, but I, I think I want to, and I will broaden the PhD program a little bit, just so we've got more potential brewing professors available in the US. That was Glenn Fox here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you're not already a Master Brewers member, keep listening for a special offer. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use the promo code BEER20 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues if you register before the end of the year. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. (laughs) 